It's Wednesday, May 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Michael Gargiulo, the so-called Hollywood Ripper, is on trial this week to face two murder charges stemming from 2001 and 2008. He is also connected to a 1993 murder in Chicago. All of his victims were young women who lived nearby him. Tarpley Hit, reporter for The Daily Beast, joins us for who the Hollywood Ripper is and the dramatic court testimony from one of his survivors. Next, the fight between the White House and Democrats in the House continue to escalate. The latest twist in the story is that the White House told former counsel Don McGahn not to comply with a subpoena for documents related to the Mueller investigation. The White House is also refusing to give Democrats the president's tax returns, and Attorney General Barr could be held in contempt of Congress. Daniel Lippman, reporter for Politico, joins us for more. Finally, an interesting case out of Plano, Texas, where a drunk man killed eight people in 2017. But just last month, the bartender who served him was arrested and charged with violating the sale to certain persons law. While she did serve him the alcohol, she also followed him and called the police. Still, she has been arrested. My producer Miranda joins us to help explain this case. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Michael Gargiulo, for almost 15 years, was watching, always watching. And his hobby was plotting the perfect opportunity to attack women. Joining us now is Tarpley Hit, West Coast reporter for The Daily Beast. We're going to be talking about an interesting true crime story. It's that of the Hollywood Ripper. It's currently going to trial right now. There's a guy who's been accused of three murders, all dating back to 1993. So he's on trial right now. And there's a few high-profile connections to it. One of his victims was a former girlfriend of actor Ashton Kutcher. It's possible that he might be hitting court to testify in this case. Tell us a little bit about who the Hollywood Ripper is. The Hollywood Ripper is this man named Michael Gargiulo. He's a man in his 40s, an air conditioner repairman, who authorities allege has murdered three women, one in Chicago, two in California, and attempted to murder a fourth woman. His method roughly is to enter their house while they're asleep, usually targets young women that are his neighbors, and then stab them. In a couple of the murders, he's been wearing surgical booties or latex gloves and then leave them murdered. The trial for Michael Gargiulo just started earlier this week. Some of the most compelling testimony came from one of the survivors to his attacks, a woman by the name of Michelle Murphy. And he, in particular, as you said, he would kind of follow them. They were usually neighbors or lived very close by to him. He would follow them, see exactly what they're doing, and then would strike at night at their homes. For Michelle Murphy, tell us about what happened to her, because she woke up in the middle of the night. He was already on top of her, stabbing her repeatedly. She has uh, some nerve damage. She has a bunch of scars from the attack, obviously. She was able to make it out. Tell us what happened with her. This is back in April of 2008. She's 26. She's living in Santa Monica. She has a roommate. She has a boyfriend of two months. They have this big apartment. And she has a neighbor across the alleyway. She has one of those alleyways where you can park your car behind the house. And she has this neighbor across the alleyway, never meets him. Basically, the only interaction that they have is that he drives this white van that says Gus the Plumber. Because at that point, Gargiulo, an air conditioner repairman, had gone into business with a plumbing company. So he was doing the heating and air for a larger business. Murphy probably sees him 10, 15 times just in the driver's seat of his van. They like 
you know, do the, hey, how are you, wave in their backyard, but really never say hi. He's never in their house. They've never spoken or said a word ever. So then in April, Murphy's roommate, Olga, is in Poland visiting family for a wedding. And so she's in this apartment completely alone. And she has a very normal day, goes to work, comes back, exercises, watches TV, goes to bed, and then wakes up with a man straddling her in bed, stabbing her. He's only stabbing her arm, but is stabbing her repeatedly. And she's obviously screaming and struggling and saying, like, why are you doing this? And he's not answering. So her instinct is to reach up and grab the blade. He's stabbing her with a serrated blade and she grabs it with both of her bare hands and is like struggling while her while it's obviously like cutting her hands. Yeah. And then also pulls her legs up to her chest, kicks him off to the floor. And then once he falls onto the floor, he just runs away. The unfortunate thing was, is that it was a hot day. She had like a fan on and she left the window open to her room. And that's exactly how he got in. I, I, you know, you had been mentioning they'd seen each other through the alleyway. He ripped the screen and got in that way, you know, very quietly undetected until he was on top of her already. She called the the cops and she found him in the in the living room right before he was ran away completely. I guess he turned around and said, I'm sorry, twice. But that was all the interaction she had with him. It's unclear why he ran away or, you know, why he said, I'm sorry. The whole thing is just kind of mysterious because with the other victims, if it is Gargiulo who did the other three murders, there was clearly a struggle in some of the other ones. And he hurt the bodies so obscenely much. Like one of the victims had 47 stab wounds to the neck. And in another one, the victim's breasts were cut off and posed around the room. The one that had the 47 stab wounds was Ashley Ellerin. She's a uh, 22-year-old fashion student. She was the one that was connected to Ashton Kutcher. They had planned to go to some Grammy Awards after party that was at the height of Ashton Kutcher's fame on that 70s show. He came to pick her up, but he told investigators that she had never come to the door. Take us back to 1993, because that's when investigators suspect he got his start. As a matter of fact, when this trial is over in Los Angeles, he's going to be extradited to Illinois to face charges there. So tell us how he got started in 1993. If Gargiulo is convicted of this 1993 murder, what authorities believe happened is that he was living in a suburb of Chicago and there was this 18-year-old high school student who had just graduated high school and was about to matriculate at Purdue. She had a full engineering scholarship and it was the younger sister of one of Gargiulo's friends. And she was coming home one night after school and at like 1 a.m. is attacked on the stoop of her house as she's trying to get in the door. And her father found her there the next morning. Authorities believe that Gargiulo was responsible for this, but he wasn't charged with that murder until years later, after he'd already allegedly killed Ashley Ellerin and a 32-year-old woman in Los Angeles named Maria Bruno. I think what's most interesting about this case is that the prosecutors have said that they will ask for the death penalty oh, yeah. if Gargiulo is convicted, which is just a, a sort of bizarre thing, given that the state hasn't executed anyone on death row in a decade. And obviously, the governor last month wrote an executive order placing a moratorium on the procedure. So there's this odd disconnect between the prosecutors who are pushing for this and what the state wants. Yeah, 100 percent voters just as recently as a few years ago voted against abolishing the death penalty. There's 737 prisoners on death row in California right now. Even if they do get granted that, nothing will happen until Gavin Newsom stops being governor. So it is a very interesting note on that one. Tarpley Hit, West Coast reporter for The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
<laughs> Democrats are so busy attacking the president and trying to undermine his uh win in 2016 that they can't focus on some of the big problems facing us like infrastructure, lowering drug prices, uh, making things better for our veterans. Joining us now is Daniel Littman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. Let's talk about this ongoing fight between the White House and Democrats. Since the Mueller report came out, the president claimed victory and total exoneration. Democrats are continuing the investigations. They want more and more out of what came from the Mueller report. So the White House wants this all to be over. Republicans want this all to be over. Democrats want to keep investigating. Daniel, please help us make sense of this whole thing. Just the other day, the White House told Don McGahn to not supply the documents related to the Mueller report that Democrats had subpoenaed. Tell us a little bit about that. What are these documents that they're wanting to get from him? So these are the internal memos he wrote at the time of his tenure in the White House. They were documenting exactly what President Trump ordered Don McGahn to do in terms of interfering with the investigation or trying to fire Mueller and other DOJ officials. And so Democrats want to see the actual original source material. And the White House and McGahn are trying to prevent that from happening. Don McGahn spent more than 30 hours speaking to the special counsel, Robert Mueller's investigators. And as you were saying, you know, some of that stuff that they're really focused on is when the president asked him to have Mr. Mueller dismissed. And um, later asking Mr. McGahn to deny some of these reports about those conversations. So I know that's one of the big things that they want to get out of it. Republicans want this all to be over. The White House wants this to all be over. Mitch McConnell has said that the Democrats are just angry, that the facts disappointed them and that the system won't magically undo the 2016 election for them. He says that this whole matter is case closed and urge Democrats to move on. I know Nancy Pelosi has come out pretty strong on that and says the case is not closed. I mean, this is just going to keep going on for a long time. This is a risk for Democrats because they don't want to be seen as relitigating the Mueller investigation when it found or when it charged Trump with no crimes. And so a lot of Democrats are privately saying that, hey, maybe we should talk about health care or transportation or infrastructure or prescription drug pricing instead of this investigation that doesn't it's not going to lead to Trump's impeachment, uh, most likely. And so and Democrats are, are fearful that they are kind of going about over their skis in terms of how much the American people care about, cares about this issue. On what grounds did the White House instruct Don McGahn to not supply those documents? The White House is trying to prevent this from becoming a bigger story, but they also want to keep it in the headlines because they view it as positive for the president and his reelection hopes, because the more people are talking about investigation that didn't lead to charges, then it's easier for them to win in 2020. But they're asserting executive privilege to basically say that he doesn't have to supply these documents? That's one of their tactics to do that, to say that these are private conversations and that this is kind of a routine business uh, in an executive branch where they're making lots of decisions about what they should do in office. And so they don't have an obligation to release this. And so this is going to be a test that it will ultimately be decided in the courts, most likely. Let's talk about some of the other fights that the president and the White House are currently having with the Democrats. The House Judiciary Committee is going to vote on holding the attorney general, Bill Barr, in contempt of Congress because he missed the deadline to give them an unredacted version of the Mueller report. And on the other side, the Trump administration has already refused to give his tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee. So that's just another thing right there that they're just constantly fighting over. The The White House is saying no to all subpoenas coming out of the House. They're stopping all of these hard in their tracks. And that's a risk because it 
makes it look like the Trump White House and the administration is not transparent and that they are not recognizing that Congress does have this oversight role and that even if some of the subpoenas are overwrought or unnecessary, that doesn't mean that the entire oversight functions of Congress should just completely come to a stop. And so the White House is, and the administration looks looks pretty secretive that they're trying to hide something and doesn't show that they are pro-transparency. We're supposed to know what our government does in our name, and it doesn't look like the Trump administration cares that much about leaving an impression that is, you know, the opposite. The Mueller report, for all that to take place, it took two years. And just experts are saying that it could be years for all of this other stuff to play out also, uh, getting more uh, redactions out of that Mueller report to get the Trump tax returns. And then all these fights, legal fights and subpoenas and whatnot could take so long. So the president is just going to face this throughout his entire term, basically. Yeah, this is a fight that will just continue every day until he's out of office. Daniel Lippman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Under this Texas law, a person is guilty of the offense, the sale to certain persons, if he or she negligently sells an alcoholic beverage to a habitual drunk or an intoxicated or an insane person. And this is a misdemeanor. It carries up to a year in jail or a fine of up to $500. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We've all heard the stories about how a bartender, it's their responsibility to stop serving somebody when they get too drunk for fear that they might drive and get a car accident, hurt other people. This story is the first time I've actually heard of anybody getting charged with something like this. The story starts in 2017, where a man named Spencer Height went on a shooting spree in Plano, Texas. He got drunk at the local public house in Plano, Texas. There, It was a bar a few blocks away from his ex-wife's home. Then he stumbled through her door, heavily armed with a pistol, a semi-automatic rifle, and a knife. There, he killed eight people. And later on, he was killed in a shootout with police. But just last month, police arrested and charged Lindsay Glass, who was the bartender who served Height that night, and she's being charged with violating the sale to certain persons law. What do we know about this, Miranda? Under this Texas law, a person is guilty of the offense, the sale to certain persons, if he or she negligently sells an alcoholic beverage to a habitual drunk or an intoxicated or an insane person. And this is a misdemeanor. It carries up to a year in jail or a fine of up to $500 or both. And a lawyer for Lindsey Glass said, you know, this guy, Spencer Height, committed the American nightmare. He was hellbent on committing this act. You know, it's it's reckless to blame a bartender a year and a half later after the fact. Bartenders and, and drinking establishments do have that duty to monitor their guests. If somebody's getting too crazy, what do they do? They kick you out because right. you're being too rowdy or too drunk or something. But you don't know what the intent in somebody's mind is when it's going to be some heinous crime like this. I mean, he had it set in his head that he was going to go murder his ex-wife. And that being said, Oscar, Lindsay Glass was friends with Spencer Height. She was friends with Meredith Height, the ex-wife. She was actually supposed to be a guest at this barbecue that the ex-wife was hosting, but she got called into work. You know, I think it's fair to say Lindsay went above and beyond what she was expected to do as just a bartender serving a customer in this situation, because when he came in, uh, he came in at two separate times. He arrived at 2.30 in the afternoon. He ordered two gin and tonics and left. He came back four hours later, ordered two Miller Lights and a shot of lemon vodka. And that's when it was starting to get weird. He was spinning a knife on the bar 
top saying that he had some dirty work he had to go do. Several people in the bar confronted him. Uh, Lindsay called her manager saying, hey, he's asking for a shot. I don't want to give it to him. He's being drunk and weird. What should I do? The boss encouraged her to keep serving him. She did everything. She followed him in her car so that he wouldn't get into a car accident until she realized he had reached his destination safe. And, and she found. called the police also when, as she was following him, she called the police. She didn't stay long enough to witness any of the shooting or anything, yeah. but that's kind of where her lawyers are saying that, you know, she is not responsible for what happened. The police actually commended her at the time saying that she saved a bunch of lives that day by calling 911 when she did. She took all these actions that weren't legally required of her. I mean, I guess under that act, you're just, Flat out, not supposed to do anything, but you know, she did, she persuaded him not to drive and he didn't listen. She called the owner and asked whether she, she should call the police. He said not to. And then she followed him home. She even texted another bartender and said, Hey, this guy's acting really weird. He's, he's like uh, acting kind of like a psycho. Mm -hmm. That other bartender confronted him outside uh, on the patio of the bar. Yeah. And he convinced him, Hey, you know, why don't you let me drive you home? Give me your he uh, also saw a gun, apparently, this other bartender. Give me your gun. Give me the knife. I'll drive you home. It's not a big deal. And that's when Spencer Hyde said, no, I have to do this. I have to see Meredith tonight. And what I have to do when I see her, I have to be this drunk to do it. But all of this had happened after he was already served the drinks. Yeah. I mean, he had it set in his head that he was going to go do it. They said that he had planned this out very meticulously. He came armed with a 38 caliber handgun. He had an AR-15 rifle and that folding knife. Police discovered rounds of ammunition and binoculars inside of his car. They found another rifle, additional ammunition, and gun accessories at his apartment. He had like two ounces of weed. He had a pound of mushrooms in his apartment. So this guy was pretty crazy to begin with. He was ready to go. Yeah, they say that when police showed up to the house after Lindsay Glass called 911 and reported the suspicious behavior, as her lawyer points it out, this was a clear example of if you see something, say something, which she did. Cops showed up. They found four bodies out in the front yard off the bat. Inside, he was still actively shooting at people when they arrived. And he was able to take down four more people, including his ex-wife. And many of the victims were people who were actually wedding party members that stood up for them when they got married previously. Yeah, many agree that this uh, Texas statute is very rarely applied um, so it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because this is going to really set a precedent for a lot of other things. You know, if anything else happens, they're going to be able to point to something like this happening. And, and you know, if she gets convicted of this, it is a misdemeanor. As you said, it's a one year in jail, one year in jail, or possibly $500 fine, maybe both, depending on the severity of it. But there's already been a big lawsuit that the families of the victims had. They were suing for a million dollars in damages against her and the local public house. But that civil suit got dropped later on. So. And that's what her lawyers are arguing. This arrest is all about is they want someone to go down for this. They don't have anyone to blame since the actual perpetrator died at the act. So she's the scapegoat for this, essentially. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>